Welcome back to CypherCast. I'm Nikki Tomalin, and this is part two of this brand spanking new podcast. I'm following a team of top shelf code breakers as they attempt to translate the first ever verified message from an extraterrestrial civilization. Now, there's lots of exciting new stuff to share with you, but first, I promise I won't be coy. Yes, you will hear the message in this episode. Right at the end of it, in fact. But by then, you might not want to. Three days ago, Dr. Robin Lyons and Professor Ty Waldman agreed to formally consider the NSA contract to decode slash translate the message. Today, they've called a meeting of the Cypher staffers they would assign to the project, if they definitely take it. It's either a huge opportunity that could put this team on the map or could make us a laughingstock. And if we get a whiff of that, we're out. In the meantime, let's begin. Can I say previously on CypherCast? Previously on CypherCast, Perry Eubanks, NSA, old colleague of me and Robbins, shows up at the end of last week with a freshly declassified recording of a transmission picked up by a Navy signal station in 1945. Mm -hmm. Originally called Transmission 72145, it never gets a proper designation and ends up being known only as the message. In the last 70 years, Five different decryption teams have attempted and failed to determine what, if any, statement the message is trying to convey to its recipients. As Robin correctly points out, we don't want to buy a pig and a poke here, so let's play our game entitled Convince Robin the Message Really Is from an Extraterrestrial. So, SETI proposes five relevant factors to determine if a signal was generated by an extraterrestrial intelligence. Repetition, spectral width, extrasolar origin, metadata, and Terran, or earthbound elimination. They've each been assigned to present on one of these topics in the hopes of persuading the unpersuadable Robin. I'm not unpersuadable, I just need more. Remember, this is all secondary sources. We haven't even listened to the message yet. So who had repetition? Jeanette. Yes, and thank you for giving the cushy one to the English major. We met Jeanette Callan briefly last week on the phone. She is Cypher's resident expert in unpacking literary or cultural references in any text they're trying to decode. So, Robin. <clears throat> Repetition is super basic. If the exact same information is being transmitted over and over again in clear, definable iterations, then the odds are that the transmission's artificial. So... I borrowed the use of Tamara's analyzing Wait. software, <laughs> and I definitely see, and I hope that you can see as well, that the transmission repeats every 28 seconds. Jeanette agreed to speak to me after the meeting about the work she does for Cypher. Like, what are you looking for in this project right now? Well, what I'm looking for in any text is um, any kind of pre-existing cultural information. So like literature, music, visual iconography, symbols, anything that has widespread association or traditions. A recognizable cultural reference is like a piece of DNA. So what kind of DNA are we looking at here, specifically? Uh, nothing from this planet, which sort of raises the question of what I'm doing on this gig. 
Back in the meeting, it was Tamara's turn to sell Robin on spectral width. Now, it wouldn't be surprising if some of you already know who Tamara Wiley is. You've probably heard her name in the news. You know those high-profile hacks lately? She's been developing cutting-edge password systems to prevent them in the future. So a random signal quite often will use up a lot of the radio spectrum. A targeted signal, by definition, will take up less. That's how we make sure every radio station gets its own frequency. And according to this spectrum analyzer, the message comes in at well under 300 hertz standard established by SETI. Meaning something intelligent made it. Not just made it. Targeted it. Excellent, Tara. And for our next trick... Okay, hello, Nikki. Hi. My name is Maud. Maud. Um, so my preferred pronouns are they and them. I'm sorry, your preferred pronouns? Just so it doesn't get weird later. We oh, honor that in course. this workplace. Of course, of course. Almost as much as we honor Maud's forthcoming explanation of extrasolar origin. Um, okay, so I, so I can't really explain it myself, but what I can tell you is how the goop balls I eavesdrop on explain it. It's not hard for me to guess what Maud does for Cypher. I'm sure that Robin and Ty need fairly regular access to, let's say, not readily available data, and I'm guessing Maud makes it readily available. Maud spreads out two complex charts in front of Robin. So this one here is from your guy Eubanks, and this one is a comparable simulation of the trajectory of an extrasolar transmission. Do I want to know where this came from? I mean, it's a pretty big deal place, and you know some okay, people there. Okay, so, all right, we need to confirm that the signal came from outside our solar system. Thank you. I know what extrasolar means. Okay, so as far as I could learn, there is this thing called sidereal time where you're like basically... Tracking the movement of the Earth relative to the astronomical bodies that aren't the sun. Thanks, Tamara. Okay, so if you can nail down the sidereal travel time of the signal, then plug that figure into a parallax triangulation equation, you can get the ballpark on the point of origin. <laughs> if by ballpark you mean a really huge amount of space. So, the triangulation your guy gave us for the message, ballparks in the M4 Scorpius Globular Cluster, which is, you know, far. So, I compared that to the simulation from the distinguished place whose name I'm not going to say because you'll get mad, and the process and the numbers match. This is what extra solar looks like. Quick sidebar, not only did I talk to Maud after the meeting, I also made a point of talking to Robin about Maud. Yes, they've been vetted. I oversaw that process myself. And uh, there weren't any red flags? Pages and pages of red flags. But they were the red flags I was looking for. Maud was equally vague when we spoke later. Yeah, I definitely, um, I made some trouble for myself at like a few junctures. Yeah? Yeah. Yeah, you gotta understand what it's like in the community. It's it's just, it's super competitive, so we all try to pull bigger and bigger stunts, you know? You're talking about, like, the hacker community? Oh, or Christ, hacker. Black hat? Oh, God, you're killing me. Um, okay, so I, I, I maybe I just don't know what the current parlance is. Oh, yeah, I don't know. I'm inside it. It's like, when you're inside it, it's just, like, the guys. That's the gender nonspecific meaning of guys, by the way. Back in the meeting... Nikki? Do, do, do yes, your homework. Yes, thank you. Metadata? Um, right. 
metadata. Um, the idea that a transmission from an intelligent civilization would not only be repeated, but also organized in its presentation. Like how a book has a table of contents and then chapters to correspond with it. Uh, basically, any piece of material that gives you instructions on how to consume it. So wait, so now you're going to tell me that the message has a table of contents? Well, metadata was new back when we were working on the message. A lot of people in the field kind of rolled their eyes at it. So remember last week when I spoke to that naval signal engineer in Hawaii, Ronald Pakai? Pakai was at Station Hypo when the message was recorded in 1945, and then later he went on to work directly with the message's most famous failed decoder. That was NSA cryptographer and Ty's personal hero, Louis Krell. Louis was one of the first people in military cryptography to sign off on the idea of metadata. Now everybody thinks in those terms today. Colonel Eubanks not only cleared Ronald Pakai to speak freely with me about Lewis Krell and the message, he also ordered Station Hypo Archives to send any message-related materials to us. So the people down at Archives were very kind, and they dug deep into the records and were able to track down this. Lewis Krell's analysis of the organizational structure of the message. Krell identified a sound heard only at the start and the conclusion of each iteration. A sound that, that doesn't recur at any other point during the transmission. Signifying the beginning and the end. Yeah, I mean, that's what he thought. Which leaves only Terran elimination. That's the biggest thing that could blow up on our faces. Mistaking a signal from this planet for a signal from another doesn't get much more embarrassing than that. That's why we have to eliminate any possibility of Earth-based origin. Ronald Pakai cited Terran elimination as one of Lewis Krell's biggest obsessions. He had us reaching out to all these weird signal stations and all kinds of far-flung places. Mm -hmm. All these private radio operators, immensely time-consuming. Because he was afraid that the message was... Afraid that it might turn out to be, I, I don't know, somebody's ham radio left on during dinner somewhere. We interviewed hundreds of former soldiers who worked at transmitting stations during World War II on both sides and listened to hundreds of recordings. Mm -hmm. And nothing sounded like the message? Not even close. How would you make a sound like that? Later, having leafed through the Lewis Krell documents, Robin is now skimming a detailed account of the investigation Pakai described. I want more time with the Krell material. Of course, absolutely. But, assuming we're reading all this data correctly... If the message didn't originate from Earth or anywhere in our solar system, mm -hmm. if it's repetitive, targeted, and organized... Then we're forced to conclude... Aliens, guys. The glee on Ty's face totally infects the room. But I tell the team what Pakai told me. Louis Krell was one of 29 different codebreakers to die while working on the message. They were all under the age of 50, and this was not during wartime. The people making the documentary that started all of this, they're all children of those codebreakers. None of them will talk to me, but 
Pakai remembers Krell's death. So, about the curse. Uh, Louis Krell died pretty suddenly? Respiratory disease, right? And he was the only one at Station Hypo who didn't smoke. <laughs> you know, secondhand wasn't even a thing we were thinking about back then. But then it came up so fast. The lung cancer. Yeah. And uh, then the other two top guys died that same year. The whole project fell apart pretty fast after that. I got shuffled into some other thing and pretty much quit thinking about it, except every once in a while I'd read a military bit about another code breaker dying young. But you listened to the message. Oh, sure, once. Maybe twice at the outside. But for me, it was need to hear only for comparison's sake. The guys on that team who died were like Lou, listened every day. Mm-hmm. But there was that civilian observer, Anders, or whatever his name was, listened to it on a daily basis right next to Lou. And as far as I know, he's led a long and happy life. So, yeah. Intellectually, I know there's no but, courage. Okay, but if I offered you the chance to listen to it right now... Uh, yeah, <laughs> that sounds like a no. And that's an old man saying no. So take from that what you will. But you know, I'm not going to mess with that thing. Back in the meeting, I've just explained all this to the team. Yeah, but different causes, right? I mean, I'm scrolling through these guys on the death certificate archive right now, and I am seeing liver cancer, I'm seeing heart attack, embolism. Then what are we even talking about? This just kind of sounds like how people die in regular life. Yeah, exactly. It's Yeah, it's maybe a little statistically weird, but it happens. And this recording is where exactly right now? I have it here on my laptop. What? Damn, dude, fire that shit up. And Ty looks at Robin, and she looks back at him. We're doing this, aren't we? So Robin reaches her hand out to her keyboard and plays the message. And of course, I was there recording, which means I'm about to play it for you. So, same disclosure to you guys that they gave us. 29 people died trying to make sense of the sounds you're about to hear. But that's 29 people out of more than 200 who worked on it over 70 years. So it's up to you. If that freaks you out, you might want to hit the pause button right now and then delete this podcast. If not, then please sit back, make yourself comfortable, and listen to the first confirmed communication from outer space. It's message time. What the hell did we just hear? Let's see if we can find out next week on CypherCast. Cypher.